As most of you know, I am the son of a veteran. Um, I spent the first, well, two of the first four years of my life in Germany. It was not long after World War II, believe it or not. They were still rebuilding, reconstructing in the early 50s. And then we went back when I was a teenager, about the seventh grade, and we stayed there four more years. I spent a lot of time growing up in Germany. The second time we went, uh, it was at the end of my seventh grade year. It was 60 years ago. It's hard to believe. And we went to Berchtesgarten. And many of you know that that is where Hitler had his hideout, his retreat up on the side of a mountain called the Eagle's Nest. And you could see for miles. But that's not what really fascinated me. What fascinated me was when we took a tour down in the valley beneath the mountain and went into the salt mines. It was fascinating. The salt mine there in Berchus Garden was opened in the, in the year that the Reformation, if you want to pick a year that the Reformation began. Anybody remember when that was? Quiz time. 1517. So it's been operating now for over 500 years. Not far from there, in Hallstatt, Austria, there is a mine, salt mine, that has been operating not for 500 years, not for 1,000 years, not 2,000 years, but for 7,000 years. Isn't that amazing? The oldest salt operation in the world. The largest mine in the world is beneath Lake Huron in Goldrich, Ontario. It was discovered in 1866 by Sam Platt. He was drilling for oil, and he kept drilling and drilling and drilling. 1,800 feet down, he didn't strike oil, but he hit what he later found to be the first salt bed discovery in America. So beneath Lake Huron, there is a small city underneath the lake itself. It has service depots, lunch rooms, storage caverns, workshops. It has about 100 miles of road that 40-ton dump trucks run across. Can you imagine that? Under the lake. And over the last 60 years, it has produced over 150 million tons of salt. But not much of it is worth eating. Uh, they say that it will last probably for another 120 years. Why isn't it worth eating? Well, it's rock salt. It's rock salt that doesn't reach the purity level that we expect for table salt, which is 97%. So what are the purposes of salt? Well, one of those is what is produced there at the um, Sifto mines under Lake Huron, and that is to salt the roads, to keep them from icing. We use it for ground cover in cold weather. And of course, you know, we also use it for flavor, as a preservative for food, it also has cleansing and purifying power. You can put it on wound to help cauterize and, and cleanse a wound. In the Old Testament, there's a reference to what is called the covenant of salt because salt represented life. Salt represented permanence. It represented, symbolized a covenant between God and man. In the grain offerings in Leviticus, Leviticus second chapter, it says that they were not to have what in the bread that was offered on the altar to God? What was not to be in it? Leaven and also 
was not to have honey. But it was to be presented with salt because salt was a representation of the everlasting covenant between God and man. In Numbers, the eighth chapter, it speaks about the everlasting covenant, Mosaic covenant with the priests, with God with the priests, represented by the covenant of salt. Later in Second Chronicles, it speaks about the eternal covenant with David, and it's represented by the covenant of salt. There's a Middle, Middle Eastern saying that says, there is bread and salt between us. And what that means is we have formed a relationship. We have formed an alliance, a covenant together by sharing this meal. And the salt represents the durative power of that alliance, that it will endure, that it has life, and it will endure to the end. So is salt perishable? Well, not, no, not really. Most of the salt that we eat, of course, is sodium chloride. And by itself, it is not perishable. It does not decompose. It does not lose its taste in itself. But it can be diluted. It can be diluted or it can be contaminated like rock salt has contaminants in it. And therefore, it does not have the taste that is required to be salt. And in that sense, salt can lose its taste. My mother-in-law got very concerned about my salt intake. And so she decided, Beverly's told some of you in the ladies' groups about this, but the rest of you haven't heard the story, whether it's amusing or not. So when we were spending about a year with them, when we came back from England and before we came to Texas, she decided that she would fill the salt shakers with salt what? Substitute. Not sodium chloride, but potassium chloride. And she thought she could pull the wool over my eyes. I am a salt expert. And the problem with salt substitute for me is I have to salt it three times as much to get the taste. And so she gave up eventually. But, you know, not all salt tastes the same. Some is weaker than others. Some is contaminated. Today's text deals with salt. We talked about light for the last couple of messages. Today we talk about salt. You might expect me to quote then from the Sermon on the Mount about being salt. But that's not the text that we look at because you see the Sermon on the Mount, that is not an imperative. And we're dealing with the imperatives of Jesus. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't give the imperative, you be salt. He says, you are salt of the earth. The imperative is found in Mark, the ninth chapter. I'm not going to have you stand because by the time you stand, you're going to sit down after I read the passage. It's only two verses long. But turn there with, with me if you would. Mark the ninth chapter, verse 49 and verse 50. And it begins with four. So that means that there's something that comes before. Don't worry, we're going to cover that. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. There's the command. Have salt in yourselves. Be salted and therefore become salt. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know, when you read this, or at least when I read it, there are three questions that come to mind. Uh, one is, what does it mean to be salted with fire? Boy, that is a leading question. Another question is, well, what's so good about this kind of salt? This kind of salt that fires people. That's not a good image in the mind. And then I guess another question is then, if there's anything good about it, then why should we have this fiery salt? 
what's, what's this being fired with salt all about? Well, to understand, I think, a little more fully, we need to look at a couple of parallel texts. Don't just pull this one out by itself. There are a couple of parallel texts that say almost the same thing, but they're in a different context. One of those is what we said earlier, and that's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five thirteen, and you know it well. Jesus says, you are what? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, if it becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and what? Trampled by men. So when we look at this, what's the meaning? This is a metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a metaphor that, that identifies followers of Christ, identifies you as not having salt, but being salt. It's a metaphor for the character of a Christian. It's a metaphor for your identity. If you're in Christ, you are salt. You're the salt of the world. And when you contrast it with a passage that we just read from Mark, the difference is this. In Mark, he's talking about an objective thing. He's talking about an objective reality outside of us that we either possess that salt or we do not possess it. You see, when Mark talks about being unsalty, he uses a different word. He's, he uses a word that means to be saltless. You don't even have any salt. You're without it. And so there's a different meaning in the two texts. Matthew focuses on what? It focuses on the usefulness of the person being salt. You're either good salt or you're bad salt. You're either good salt that has flavor and you're useful or we are bad salt. And the word that is used there is a root word that means moron. (laughs) You see, if you're useless, you don't fulfill your purpose. You're kind of foolish salt, insipid, flat. And so the point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is saying we are either effective or we are ineffective. And he is telling his disciples, you are effective salt agents. You're useful for the kingdom of God. The traditional application of that text is don't lose your Christian flavor. Be an influence to the people around you. Influence culture with the gospel message and the way you behave. He's saying in the Sermon on the Mount to us that we are that kind of salt and we are to influence and affect culture, just like he talks about light later. You're the light of the world. So don't put your light under a bushel. Do what? Influence. Bring light. Punch holes in the darkness. You know, it's similar to the parable of the leaven. Of course, the parable of the leaven has many more applications than this. But in Matthew, the 13th chapter, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and she hid in a peck of flour and it then leavened the whole peck. You see, it's that idea. Salt then affects everyone around them. But there's another possible interpretation that I want you to consider this morning in that passage. You see, Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, comes right after what? Blessed are the eight Beatitudes. And what is the last Beatitude? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs, for they they will be then what? They they will be uh, in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness. And then he talks about those that are salt. You see, by 
by being persecuted, we identify with the kingdom of heaven in such a way then, and he links it in the next passage with being salt of the world. What's, what's in that? He's talking about being persecuted, being pursued, being put to flight. If we are salt, we're not put to flight. If we're salt, we have staying power. If we're salt, we are like those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and we inherit the kingdom of God. We have the kingdom of God that we can share with others. So there's something about the Matthew passage that helps inform what we read in Mark. The background of persecution, putting to flight is literally the verb, has something to do with this fire that salts us. There's something about us, the, the, the salt that, that fires us that has something to do with putting to flight. There, there's another passage of Scripture that's parallel, and that is the hard call to discipleship that Jesus gives in Luke, the 14th chapter. What Jesus has done there is he has talked about the hard call. He's saying, you must love me so much that your love for me is like hatred for your family. You must love me more than your family. You must be willing to follow me and you must be willing to take up your cross. And you must count the cost. You must count the cost like a builder building a tower. And you must be like a king going into battle and consider the battle before you go to war. So there's a very high cost of discipleship that he's talking about there. And then he says this, Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, in this passage, it's an implied metaphor as well. Basically, he's saying the same thing that Matthew says about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You see, as a result of being Christ's disciple, as a, a result of responding to the, hall, the, the hard call to discipleship, we then become salt. We become gospel salt. And the emphasis here is also on usefulness. But there's a slightly different emphasis here. In this passage, he's not talking, the background isn't persecution. It's not putting to flight. It is about sacrifice. It's about sacrificial service to the Lord. These two passages, I think, have something to do to inform our reading of Mark. The Sermon on the Mount tells us there's something about being salted with fire that puts something to flight. And from Luke's passage, it involves self-sacrifice on our part. So let's take a look at, the, at Mark and look at the context. What's happened up to this point in the ninth chapter and the gospel of Mark. Well, there have been many dramatic successes in Jesus' ministry. The disciples have witnessed many demonstrations of God's power. Many have been healed. Many have been exercised. Legion, thousands of demons have been cast out. The Syrophoenician woman, uh, woman's child has been exercised. He's cured lepers. He's cured the blind. He's cured those that are deaf and the lame. He's still the sea. He's walked on the water. He has raised a little child in Jairus' home. The woman with the issue of blood for 12 years has been cured. He's fed 5,000. He's fed 4,000. They have witnessed all of these miracles. And then Jesus sends his disciples out to do the same thing. And they have done this. They have gone out themselves from Nazareth 
into the countryside, the Galilean countryside, and they have exercised demons themselves. They have anointed people, and they have healed them. They have watched Jesus stand before the religious leaders and defy the religious leaders who are not following God's word. And he's defended his disciples against them for eating grain in the field on the Sabbath. He has defied them about their following of the purity code. So the disciples have been amazed at what he has done, and they are frankly amazed at what they have been able to do by this time. But there's a word of warning, and it comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a word of warning of those that are amazed by all of the great things that God does, and maybe even through their preaching, their teaching, and their ministry, they have done amazing things as well. You see, it's not enough to witness God's power, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough to proclaim the gospel and to preach it or to teach it. It's not enough to witness miracles or maybe even allow God to do miracles through you. Because there is a haunting refrain that comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and you know what it is. He says, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. His disciples have been listening to this. But only who? Only who enters the kingdom of heaven, he says, but only he or she who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, there are going to be many on that day that say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not preach? Did we not teach in your name? And in your name did not we also drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Just the opposite of well done, good and faithful servant. And then he will say, Depart from me, you evildoers. Now, his disciples have heard this. They have performed miracles. They have proclaimed the message of the gospel. They have anointed people, the sick, and they've become well. They've exercised demons. But nobody is exempt from Christ's expectation to be obedient to God. It begs the question from the Sermon on the Mount, then, how does one do the will of the Father who is in heaven? And I think that that helps us understand what he's talking about in Mark the ninth chapter. Because in the Mark the ninth chapter, Jesus addresses this very thing. You see, he's talking to disciples who think they've made it. They've gone out and performed the same miracle, kinds of miracles. They haven't raised the dead as far as we know yet. But there are three disturbing problems that have emerged in Mark, the ninth chapter, at the end of the eighth and the beginning of the ninth chapter. And I think that this disturbs Jesus. Number one, they have exhibited very little faith and devotion. And number two, there's a dissension in their ranks. And number three, there's jealousy of others that are doing the ministry of the gospel. You see, when you look at Mark, the ninth chapter, little faith and little devotion. What has happened? Immediately after they have witnessed, some of them have witnessed the transfiguration and come down from the mountain, and I'm sure they've shared it with the others. Immediately after that mountaintop experience, what happens? The disciples who have healed others, the disciples who have cast out demons before in Galilee, are incapable of casting the demon out of the demon-possessed boy. And you have to look at Matthew the 17th chapter to look at the full account of that to see what Jesus says to them. He says to them in Mark that this comes out only by prayer, but in Matthew the 17th chapter, he says, 
The reason that you are incapable of doing this is because of the littleness of your faith. And oh, by the way, you need to be praying about it. And you need to be fasting. You see, the core problem, I think, at this point in Mark, the ninth chapter, is they have exhibited a self-centered kind of confidence in themselves, and they are not depending on Christ. They're not depending on God. They have come to the point of self-importance that they are trying to do things in their own strength. Woe be unto us today when we try to minister and preach and teach the gospel in our own power. There's a second demonstration of that weak faith then when he predicts again the second time that he is going to suffer and he's going to die in Jerusalem. He's done it before. He did it in Mark the 8th chapter and he does it again. And yet the second time it says they still did not understand. And then Mark says something rather curious. He says, not only did they not understand, but they were afraid to ask him about it. Why were they afraid to ask him about it? Because I tell you why, I think, because I think they knew what it meant. Not fully, but they knew when he said that he was going to die, that he was going to suffer. And I think that they were afraid to ask what that meant, that probably it meant that they too were also going to suffer. So you see, the first problem is this exhibition of weak faith and dependence on themselves. Then you come to verses 33 through 38. If you're looking at Mark the ninth chapter, what happens then? There's dissension in their ranks. They have argued about who's the greatest of them. They're more concerned about position and rank and power In fact, they're no different than the religious leaders that they have confronted before. The religious leaders like the Pharisees, the political leaders like Herod. And Jesus, after the feeding of the 4,000, has warned them about this. He has said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Have you hardened your hearts? Do you still not understand what I'm trying to teach you? And in Mark the ninth chapter, he gently rebukes them about this. It's not about power. It's not about position. He says what? If you're going to be first, you must be last. And you must be what? Servant of all. And he calls a little child and has the child stand in front of him. He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What he's saying in there is we must accept those that come to faith in Christ as believers, as children of God. It's that simple. It's not about power and position. But he's also saying this. He's saying the kingdom of God is built on childlike faith. There's a third problem in this chapter. Not just a little faith and not just their dissension in their ranks, but also jealousy of others in verses 38 through 41. You see, John then shifts gears right after this. And John, speaking for them all, seeks to justify himself and the others as being special and privileged. Sort of like John the Baptist's disciples. Do you remember in John the third chapter, John the Baptist's disciples complained to John because that fellow on the other side of the Jordan over there, you know, that fellow Jesus, he's baptizing and more people are following him than are following us. Well, they were wrong about it. It wasn't Jesus who was baptizing. It was his disciples. But there was this kind of jealousy, you see. Jealousy in ministry. And we see this exhibited amongst the disciples. And Jesus rebukes them for their exclusiveness and their proud conceit. And he says, listen, whoever is not against us is for us. There are other servants in God's kingdom beside you. And they will demonstrate this to you when you are thirsty and give you a cup of cold water. 
And basically what he's saying to them, he's repeating to them in a kind of inside-out way what he said before. You must be a servant like they are. So you see what's happened up to this point is Jesus, I think, is disturbed about these signs amongst his disciples that they haven't quite gotten it yet. And then he returns to the answer of what it is to fulfill the Father's will. And it boils down to this. Behave as godly witnesses. This is a matter of life and death and discipleship. It's a matter of life and death for you, and it's a matter of life and death for those that you influence, Jesus says. In the Sermon on the Mount, he does this in a positive way. He says, you are the salt of the earth. So season people with the gospel message. Season people with your behavior and help to transform society. In the Sermon on the Mount, he does it in a positive way. He says, your light, shed your light on the world around you. But here, in this passage, he does it in a negative way. He reminds them, he says, there are little ones that are watching you. You must set the right example. Your responsibility is heavy to set the right example. And never, never lead one of them astray. If you do, you ought to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. And then he says, what you need to do is to purge yourself. Purge yourself of all sinful behaviors, for they're stumbling blocks. There's a parallel passage in the Sermon on the Mount to this, when Jesus is giving the antitheses, where he is fulfilling the law, and he speaks about adultery. You remember he says, you've heard that it is said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And what did he say? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for one part of your body, you not to have one part of your body than for you to go into hell. And this is a parallel passage to that. He uses three examples here. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off or face the fire of hell. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, or you will face the fire of hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, or you will face the fire of hell. I think it's stretching it a little bit for me to say this, to draw this parallel, but you know, he's dealt with three problems, hasn't he? He's dealt with the problem of little faith. He's dealt with a problem of dissension. He's dealt with a problem of jealousy. I don't think that's why he does this three times, but maybe it is. You see, there are stumbling blocks that every disciple faces, and it can take many forms. It can be spiritual oppression that comes from the evil one through temptation. It can come through human opposition and persecution that puts us to flight. It can be the selfish desires that cause us to conform to the world. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you are going to follow me, people are watching you. And you need to be willing to submit yourself totally, self-sacrificially unto God through me. Be willing to relinquish every self-serving motive that you have for power, position. Be willing to let these stumbling blocks be put to flight for them to be cut away. But you see, you can't do this in your own power. Not a single one of us is able to put away sin, the temptation of stumbling blocks in our own power. What does it require? 
It requires the laser power of God's fire. And John the Baptist promised that. And Matthew's gospel before, the, before Jesus comes on the scene, John is speaking to the people, isn't he? And he says, you know, I baptize you with water for repentance. But there's one that comes after me that is more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water. But he is going to baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. And what? And fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. The only thing that can put to flight the stumbling blocks in our lives, Jesus is saying, the only thing that can cut away those stumbling blocks is the laser fire of Christ's purifying effect in our lives. He is the one who burns away all sin. He purges all impurities. Like the grain offering, what we must do is we must become a, a sacrifice unto God on the altar of God who is salted with Christ's fire. Purified, not only so that we can be salt and we can influence the society around us and to share the gospel message, but also that we might be purified. We might be sanctified for his service. I think that's what it means here to be salted with fire. We're to have salt in ourselves, not just be recognized as salt, not just have the name of being a Christian, not just being identified as a Christ follower, but actually to possess the salt of Christ's fire in our lives. The currency of God's salt that we share with others. And then what we can do is we can promise others that are struggling with temptation, struggling with sin, struggling with these difficulties in their lives, that the fire of Christ's salt can cleanse them. Because there, there is evidence in our lives that it has happened. And then what happens? We live in peace with one another. Not self-centeredly searching for power and position, one against the other like the disciples were doing. Not being contentious and divisive. Not being jealous of others who have maybe bigger ministries, bigger churches, bigger congregations, bigger Sunday school classes, more baptisms. That guy over there... <laughs> He's baptizing more than we are. No, what happens is we become united in Christ and He then establishes with us the peace with God. And it takes us back to the Beatitudes. Kind of work backwards through the Beatitudes. What is the one before being persecuted for righteousness' sake? We become peacemakers, children of God who share His kingdom with others. It's about working together peaceably. So as people look at us, they don't see a divided church. They don't see dissension. They don't see disagreement. They don't see argument. They don't see hostility, but they see peace among the people of God because they're the peacemakers in our society. May we all be salted with Christ's fire, purged of all of those things that keep us from being, being obedient to the Father. And so, in fact, one of these days, 
when we stand before him and we say, Lord, Lord, he will say, I know you. Enter into the kingdom of rest with your Father. Would you pray with me? Father, help us not only to be identified as salt, but to be salted with your fire, purged and cleansed of our unrighteousness. Help us to be living sacrifices, as Paul exhorts us in Romans, to present ourselves as living sacrifices to you and the salt of Christ's fire to purge us and to cleanse us when we cannot save and cleanse ourselves. Maybe there's somebody this morning that's listening, Father, who has sinned in his or her life, does not know what to do with it, temptations and problems and struggles in his or her life, and they do not know how to cope. Our message to them through you is come to Christ. Come to the one who knows, the one who can cleanse, the one who can salt them with fire and can restore them in peace to you. Our Heavenly Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.